Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. I cannot wait to get on. I've said it before. I can't wait to get on an elevator with a bunch of other people. I used to hate that. But I can't wait to get on a crowded elevator again. Dr. Isaac Bogosh begins things for us today, infectious diseases specialist, Toronto General Hospital Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Toronto, member of the Ontario Vaccine Distribution Task Force. Dr. Bogosh, good to talk to you. Great to chat as well, Roy. I agree. I can't wait as well. And things that I didn't like before, I miss. Like, you know when you're sitting at a restaurant and they just crowd you all in and you can hear everything at the table to the left and to the right, to the right of you? Like, I'm actually looking forward to that. Yeah, me too. I mean, I'm waiting to go to a movie theater and hear somebody tell me from the row behind me what's going to happen next. Yeah. <laughs> it's coming. We'll get there. We really will. Okay, so should we, here's the question out of the gate. Should we expect life to return to something close to normal before we turn the calendar page to 2022? Yes. The short answer to that is yes. Now, it might be a bit of a bumpy road to get there, but I do think we will get there. The wild card here is the variance of concern, but we still know that the vaccines do have some degree of efficacy against these variants of concern. Yeah, if we let our foot off the gas too too uh, quickly, we'll see a, another bump in cases as provinces reopen. Uh, if they don't do this carefully, there certainly is a potential for a third wave or a third wavelet or something. But as we move from the spring into the spring or from the spring to the summer, more and more and more Canadians will be vaccinated. Uh, there'll be lots of different reasons why case numbers will go down, but case numbers will very likely go down and we will gradually and slowly return to something that more closely resembles 2019 compared to 2020. It's not going to be exactly the same, but it will be much closer to that end of the spectrum. Okay, now we're seriously lagging behind other nations. As far as vaccination of population is concerned, number 39 internationally. The BBC has a story which says three of 100 Canadians uh, have been vaccinated on average, 14 in the United States, 21 in the UK. From your perspective, as an infectious diseases specialist and member of the Ontario Vaccine Task Force, how troubling is it that we're 39th internationally in vaccinating citizens, and particularly as a G7 nation? Yeah, so I'm not here to defend anyone. I'm just here to, like, this is, you know, you just look at the data and make a data-driven opinion. Um, we're not the United States, and we're not the U.K., and we're not the European Union. We don't make these vaccines here. We have to buy them. Our, our best friend and neighbor is making Pfizer vaccines in their plant in Kalamazoo. You can shoot a hockey puck from Kalamazoo and hit Ontario, but we're not getting vaccines from them. They're not delivering them to us. We have to get them from Belgium. The EU is making vaccines. Like, I think given where we sit in the world, given our buying power, and I, I think we're, don't laugh me off the phone, I don't think we're doing as bad as some people say. Could we be doing better? Absolutely. But I don't think it's as, you know, people are making this a 10 out of 10 problem, and I don't see it that way. With the provision that our midterm goals and our long-term goals are set. If we truly get the vaccines we're supposed to get in March, April, May, if we truly have every one of us who wants to be vaccinated, vaccinated by the tail end of the summer, I would consider that a success. Yeah, it might have been a little slow out of the gate, but if we truly meet those mid and late uh, year 
landmarks, I, I, I'd say that's a win. So a few of the questions I'm asking you have come from listeners by way of email over the last number of weeks. One that I received just yesterday, actually this is repeated several times, this, this idea, this question. We have in daily infection numbers down significantly across Canada, 982 today in Ontario. I just heard that on a newscast. But a month ago, uh, it was suggested that up to 40,000 new cases per day may be the reality in Ontario in the middle of February, 982 today. So, yeah, we're told the case count is probably significantly higher than testing shows but what are we supposed to believe, Dr. Bogosh? The published numbers of daily infection counts are pushed hard when they're high, and when they drop, the claim becomes quite often the count is likely much higher than reported. It's hard to, it's hard to know where to turn. So I think we have to clearly be skeptical, skeptical consumers of information. And when the modeling is released, remember, the modeling shows three things. Number one, what's the worst-case scenario? Number two, what's the middle of the road, more likely scenario? And number three, what's the scenario going to be if we take even additional further measures? That's, those are all three scenarios. So when people say, well, they told us we're going to have five trillion cases per day in April and we didn't have that, it's a failure. No, remember, that's the worst case scenario if you let your guard down and you let her rip. And of course, we're not letting our guard down and letting her rip. Uh, so we don't see those cases. So I think people have to look a little more carefully at what the modeling tables actually demonstrate. Um, and, you know, there's reason to celebrate, right? Like Ontario is a great example. Alberta is another great example. Same with Manitoba. There's actually coast to coast. You're mo more often than not, there's really good news from, uh, you know, mid-December to now where you saw these really high case counts that have plummeted. And are now, you know, they're not out of the woods, but they're far, far, far lower. You know, Ontario, probably below a thousand cases. Yeah, Toronto's not reporting everything, but we're hovering around the 1,000 cases per day. That's not ideal, but that's a hell of a lot better than 3,300 new cases per day in Ontario. So clearly we're doing something right. But of course, nothing and, so easy, right? And, and many different provinces had different approaches, right? You got different it. provinces you got took it. different approaches. You got it. But the numbers have come down in all provinces, regardless of the approach. Well, it just goes to show you there's lots of right ways to do this. And there's not one right approach. As long as you're adhering to fundamental public health principles and keeping your population safe, you're doing something right. I just think at the end of the day, we've got to be very careful. I'm not a chicken little skies falling kind of person, but I still think we have to approach these variants of concern with caution uh, and, and, and with care because they, they might certainly pose a risk. They might make it harder to keep this under control. If we can avoid a third wave, let's avoid a third wave. When it comes to different vaccines, we're hearing about different companies, different pharmaceutical companies, developing additional vaccines at different rates. AstraZeneca is expecting a new version of COVID-19 vaccine by this autumn. What's involved and how can vaccine development deal with emerging variants when most likely we may not even be aware of many of the new variants of the virus that are out there? Yeah, it's, a good, it's really interesting how nimble these companies are. Um, you know, they're really good at what they do, and there's different vaccine technologies that uh, actually enable rapidly pivoting to create bigger, better, more up-to-date vaccines. You think every year, for example, our influenza vaccine changes, right? We have to accommodate the influenza vaccine 
every single year to keep up to date with the changing influenza virus. This really is the same concept. We have a virus, a coronavirus, that happens to be changing as predictably. All viruses do. And, uh, and the whole point is to keep up to date with it. I think a really interesting thing here is the newer technology, the mRNA technology. So the Pfizer and the Modernus, for example. This is fascinating because you can make and mass produce the vaccine so much quicker compared to other vaccine platforms. And I really think this is the way of the future. It's plug and play. And uh, you don't have to go through the same phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials that you did before necessarily. You already done that. All you're doing is just tweaking the, uh, the little mRNA component to keep up to date with the variants. But the rest of the vaccine is exactly the same. So this is definitely the way of the future. We will see up, we are going to see updated vaccines. We will need boosters. It's just not entirely clear what the frequency of getting those boosters will be. Okay. There was a new story a little earlier about uh, how patients are being, or potential patients or uh, members of our society are being uh, determined as to who gets the vaccine next. And there was a a list that was uh, issued by the province of Ontario, by the task force, that you're a member of earlier today, or we became aware of it earlier today. How do you decide, how does the task force decide who's going to be getting the vaccine next? Simple, through two lenses, equity and evidence. And those are the two, those are the two lenses to look through. Um, We know that some communities are disproportionately impacted than others. We also know that some individuals are disproportionately impacted than others. So phase one is those who live and work in long-term care. Long-term care, depending on where you are in the country, accounts for anywhere from 60 to 80% of the deaths. That's a no-brainer. You also can't have through frontline healthcare workers putting themselves in harm's way and not having some uh, priority to get the vaccine. So people in the emergency rooms and ICUs and wards caring for COVID-19. Of course, other healthcare providers would definitely benefit and will be prioritized. This is triaging to make sure that the highest risk people get the vaccine first. Indigenous communities, of course, are at risk and, and they're, they're prioritized. And then now in Ontario, for example, we're expanding the program to really include people over the age of 80 who are community dwelling. Uh, again, we know the older you are, the greater the risk you are for having a severe outcome in death. And in fact, if we look at every single risk factor for COVID-19, every single risk factor for severity of illness, age stands out far and above anything else. Yes, there's lots of risk factors. Yes, they all need to be prioritized, but age is by far the biggest one. So here's another question that came by way of email, and I've seen this one several times. What about people who may be immunocompromised? Should they be receiving the vaccine? There's some concern about people who have these issues. Yeah, yeah. So there's lots of people because they have a whatever medical condition or medication they're taking for a medical condition that may suppress their immune system a bit. Of course, like anything else, the nuance and the details are important, and it's important that you speak with your healthcare provider. However, in general, the goal is we have to think about two things. One is that these individuals are at greater risk of having a severe outcome if they get this infection. Full stop. Your, your immune system is compromised. You're at greater risk of having a severe infection. The other thing, too, is the vaccines. It's not so much a question of will the vaccine be safe. These aren't live vaccines. Pfizer and Moderna are not live vaccines. They're not going to cause you to get COVID-19, right? The question is, will they be as effective in you because you might not mount the same immune response? Most healthcare providers would say, yes, you should get it because 
some immune response is certainly a lot better than no immune response if you don't take the vaccine. And because you're at greater risk of a severe infection being immunocompromised, you should get this vaccine. But of course, I have to go back to the first point. There's no one-size-fits-all answer. Have a discussion with your healthcare provider, but don't be surprised if they recommend you getting the vaccine for those reasons I just described. So we have less than a minute here, and I must ask you this, because this was, a, again, a global news story earlier today. Some experts are saying that all of us should expect, well, we know that COVID's going to be around, it's not going to disappear, but they're thinking it may change into a, quote, mild annoyance. What do you say? Yeah, I think if we fast forward years, it will morph into something like that as people gradually build up some levels of immunity through either natural infection or repeated immunization. It might morph and evolve into something like that, as we've seen with uh, different other respiratory viruses. Uh, Totally not an unexpected outcome, but at the end of the day, we're all just guessing. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.